everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Carrie Parker, as always, and uh, we've got a great show for you again this week. Uh, just a little bit, we're going to be talking with David Reese from the EFF about Section 702, which sounds wonky, and it kind of is, but it really affects everybody. So I uh, highly encourage you to stay tuned and keep a close ear on that one. But before we get into that, we've got a couple news items this week. And of course, at the end of the show, as always, we'll have our tip of the week. So uh, let's start off with some news. Uh, I wanted to update you on the Reaper botnet, the Reaper malware that has been attacking our Internet of Things infrastructure uh, for a good bit now. And uh, we're still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen with this. Um, so far, it is spreading, but it hasn't done anything yet. It hasn't tried to attack anything yet. So we're kind of waiting to see what happens. But that also means that in the meantime, we've got some uh, things we can do to protect ourselves and try to um, reverse its course and prevent its spread. So um, there was an interesting article uh, by F5 Labs, and uh, shout out to Steve Gibson for helping me find that one. That was a good article. And I just want to read a couple quotes from that just to kind of get you updated. Um, uh, first of all, it says, quote, we have data that, that suggests it could include over 3.5 million devices and could be capable of growing at nearly 85,000 devices per day, unquote. So that's huge. Uh, the Mirai botnet from last year was nowhere near that size, uh, and it was still able to wreak a lot of havoc. Um, this is a massive botnet. And of course, if you missed um, our episode, I guess, last week on on the Reaper, uh, and when I talked about botnets, botnets are, botnet is short for robotnet or robot network, network of robots, uh, a bunch of hacked computers. In the old days, it would have been a, a bunch of hacked computers. But today, the, the most insecure and prevalent uh, computer devices on the network are these Internet of Things devices, our Nest thermostats, our um, Hue light bulbs. I guess I'm naming particular products. I don't know if in particular those products are insecure. So maybe I should back up. But those kinds of products, these these network devices, these smart devices that used to be regular old dumb devices uh, that we've decided would be really cool to hook onto the Internet. And so we can control them from afar and, you know, control them along with other things and home automation and a lot of really great, cool, fun stuff. I, you know, I will admit that. But unfortunately, a lot of these devices uh, need to be cheap. And one of the ways to cut corners to make them cheap is to make them well, not make them insecure, but to not make them secure, to not spend the time and the money. It takes a lot of time and effort to get something to be secure. And all these devices that are on the, the, the network, they're all miniature computers. They all have little operating systems running on them. And therefore, like any computer, if they're not well secured, they can be hacked. So the Reaper botnet is uh, uh, very sophisticated, very smart. Um, is attacking all sorts of devices from all sorts of different angles and is spreading um, very quickly. And at any point in time, whoever is controlling this botnet could flick the switch and say, you know, all right, my millions of devices, I want you to pummel some website that I don't like, or I want to make a point. I want you to take down Amazon. I want you to take down whatever. Um, and with that many devices, you can cause a lot of grief. So um, anyway, we're kind of waiting to see what happens with that. Um, again, a quote from the article, they say, right now, Reaper is an object lesson for IoT manufacturers and security researchers. It's like a giant blinking red light in our faces every day, warning us that we'd better figure out how to fix IoT security soon, unquote. And I would agree. So <laughs> so it's kind of lurking out there. We're kind of waiting to see what happens. It, um some people even speculated that it's really just somebody just doing some research just to see what they could do if they wanted to um, and laying the groundwork for something else in the future. We don't know. This could be a nation state. 
uh, including our own, uh, our own being the U.S. Like this is a global show, I guess. So uh, me being a U.S. citizen, I'd say our own. Um, we just don't know. So anyway, just wanted to give you an update on that. And uh, uh, if you haven't already, uh, I wrote a rather long article um, on my blog about how to secure your Internet of Things devices and your home network in general. Uh, I'll put a note in the show notes about that. But if you go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, uh, it's probably the first or second article uh, on that on my website. All right, next up, I want to draw your attention to a piece of legislation that is uh, coming up before Congress. Actually, it hasn't made it very far yet, but I, I want to draw your attention to it because it's very important, um, crucial, actually, for our democracy. And I uh, wanted to get it on your radar so that you can go out and contact your representatives and tell them how much you support this idea. Um, we talked to Barbara Simons back in July, I believe, uh, about how to hack our electric, our election systems and our voting systems and how insecure so many of them really are today. Uh, and more to the point, um, how, how impossible they are to audit. Uh, so many of our voting systems don't even have a paper trail. If it's all electronic and somebody were to hack that, there'd be no way to figure out what was done um, and to go back after the fact and recount votes because if the electronic votes are modified, there's nothing to count that you could trust. Um, so we had a really good discussion with Barbara Simons on that. Anyway, just to let you know, there's this new uh, Securing America's Voting Equipment Act, save for short. Uh, and just a real quick quote from the article from Naked Security, uh, which is a Sophos blog, a really good blog to read. Uh, it says, quote, the program would offer offer awards for finding the most significant vulnerabilities, but doesn't specify how much it would pay. It would also give hackers a pass for the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, as long as they don't exploit the flaws for their own purposes and reveal them publicly before providing the information to the DHS or the Department of Homeland Security. So a couple things I want to unpack there. First of all, the, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFFA, a CFAA, and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, uh, we talked about those with Cory Doctorow a few weeks back. Uh, DMCA has been used to block a lot of copyright ostensibly to block copyright infringement, but what it's really been abused uh, is to prevent people from owning things that they thought they bought. Uh, for instance, being able to uh, fix software or fix bugs in software of things that have no longer been supported or uh, to fix things on their own because uh, to try to look at the software is breaking the law. Um, anyway, I'm not going to get too much into that. You might want to check out the, the episode I did with Corey on that. But the, the point is that these two laws, the CFAA and the DMCA, have been used to prevent security researchers, in many cases, from being able to vet products um, to make sure that they're secure. And uh, we, you know, we need more of that. We need these people to be able to do that. And, and if they're doing it in the right way, as kind of specified here, where they find the bugs and they quietly report them uh, so they could be fixed and patched before the bad guys get them, uh, that's a responsible thing that we need. Uh, and so it's, a, it's great that this act has included that in the, um, that language uh, in there is to allow security research to do this. And it's great that they're actually opening up these this bug bounty program, this thing where hackers can come and try to hack these voting systems, which uh, from from past experience, I'm guessing, going to guess is pretty easy. Um, so uh, anyway, it's a, it's a good bill. Um, uh, let me I'll read a couple more points here just to, to drive it home. It says uh, it will formally designate voting systems as a as a critical infrastructure. Uh, which is great. Um, it will provide grants to states to help them improve their security of their voting systems. Obviously, something we've actually done in the past that was not done well, uh, but hopefully with some more regulation and some more guidelines around 
you know, like for instance, having a paper trail, having some sort of a way to uh, physical output that you could audit after the fact if you don't trust the computers. Uh, and the third point here to that to that point says requiring voting system integrity audits beginning in 2019 and continuing every four years after that and only systems that have passed the audit criteria can be used in future elections. Uh, and finally, improve classified information sharing from the federal government to the states regarding security threats on these voting systems. All good stuff and well worth um, supporting. So uh, check out the SAVE Act, uh, contract your representatives, and um, tell them that you support that. Okay, and now it's time to start our interview with David Reese. And as promised, we are here with David Reese. Uh, he's a writer covering NSA surveillance and federal surveillance policy for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Love those guys. And uh, at the EFF, of course, is a digital rights nonprofit. So uh, welcome, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Carrie. Thanks for having me on the show. And yes, yeah, so let's dive right in. So we're going to talk about something today that sounds like really wonky. So like Section 702 <laughs> of the FISA Amendment Act. Um, but it's uh, you know, this little obscure bit of legal code has been used to perform wireless wa or warrantless spying of American citizens in the U.S. for years. Um, uh, fact brought to light by Edward Snowden. So let's just start with the basics. Like, what is FISO, and certainly what is Section 702? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, big high-level questions here. Uh, FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and it's actually it was actually something passed way long ago. Uh, the original one was passed in, uh, passed in 1978. And FISA is actually just sort of rules that allowed, back then, uh, you know, 1978, that allowed uh, the U.S. to surveil assumed spies, uh, assumed uh, foreign government agents operating within the United States. So again, it's spies who are inside the United States and uh, allowed them to monitor them electronically. Uh, that's that's FISA as it is in 1978. But okay. in 2008, uh, we went through a change and interestingly enough, uh, expanded it quite a bit. Uh, Congress expanded FISA and uh, made it apply to foreigners outside the United States. So it's kind of flipping it on its head there. And when FISA was reconsidered in 2008. Uh, it's called the FISA Amendment Act 2008. That's when it passed. Uh, something included in it is this section that you just mentioned here, Section 702. Uh, really important thing, hugely, hugely pivotal in the way surveillance is performed uh, in the United States. And it is a bit of a bear. Um, but the quickest way I think I can explain it is that Section 702 authorizes how foreign intelligence is collected, how uh, foreign actors are monitored. But unfortunately, because of the way foreign intelligence is done, sometimes American communications are swept up in that surveillance as well. Hmm. And this was, <laughs> this was uh, the basis of the PRISM program and some of the similar programs that Edward Snowden uh, uh, kind of revealed in 2013. Is that correct? Yeah, precisely. This is uh, this is the law that the U.S. government relies on to say that PRISM is legal, uh, to say that uh, kinds of surveillance that, again, catch and sweep up American communications, U.S. person communications, this is the thing they point to to say, hey, it's legal. 
And originally this was, if I recall, this was after 9-11, Bush signed some sort of, I don't know if it was secret or not, but I'm guessing it was, some sort of a program yeah. he authorized shortly after 9-11 that kind of, I don't know, President, I don't know if it was what they consider an executive order or whatever it was, but it was some sort of program he had. And this this Section 02 and this redo of the uh, the amendment of the FISA kind of auth like retroactively uh, made all of that legal and at the same time, like, gave the tele telecom companies that were complicit in all these things a, a kind of carte blanche, kind of a free ticket. Is that is that about right? Yeah, 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 it is. It's these kinds of things. You know, I'm only kind of laughing because when you hear these things one after the other, just in the <laughs> list, you're like, no, that can't be so. <laughs> but it, it absolutely is so. And, and you're right. Um, after September 11th, uh, President George W. Bush at the time uh, essentially said, look, we need to do what we can to make surveillance legal. We need, a, we need to do whatever it is you can to allow us to cast a wider net. We need to know what's happening. We need to know how we missed this attack. How, you know, how did this not come on our radar? And there was a huge, huge, like you said, uh, telephone company monitoring program. And telephone companies were complicit in it. They, they acted in it. And when it was revealed and confirmed that they were engaging in this type of surveillance, handing over uh, data on American communications to the government, the government decided uh, retroactively, again, they decided, uh, actually, everyone who helped out on this program, we grant them immunity. Uh, we couldn't sue them. Uh, and lawsuits that were happening at the time, EFF included, had a lawsuit against AT&T. That lawsuit was thrown out because, again, of this retroactive community because of a, an act of Congress that said, actually, they're fine. They're, they're okay. <laughs> wow. So you, you've mentioned several times that this law was expanded and, and allows Americans to now be swept up in this, what, what should be foreign surveillance. How exactly is that the case? How, for instance, uh, you know, if we're supposedly, if this is a foreign intelligence surveillance act, how do, how do Americans get involved and how does this not trip on the fourth amendment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent questions. Really good stuff here. Um, so the way it works is the government can, what is what they call target. There, there's a lot of argument about what the word target means, but the government can target someone outside the United States and ask to receive their communications uh, to do electronic surveillance. Unfortunately, and rather naturally, sometimes people living outside of the United States do have conversations with people inside the United States. That's sure. a completely yeah, sure. normal thing that can happen. Well, what's happening is the NSA, they're not getting one side of those email communications, right? If they're looking for a specific person, again, outside the United States, they're getting the communications that that person is giving to everyone else. Imagine how many people you email in one day. Yeah. Imagine how many people you email in, in one week. And now imagine if those people are U.S. persons, and imagine if those U.S. persons' communications are also getting swept up. And so that's what's happening. They say, hey, I want to target person A. Well, person A is talking to persons A, you know, B through Z. Mm -hmm. And sometimes persons B through Z are U.S. persons, and those emails, I'm telling you, email content is getting swept up. As well as phone calls, yes? And phone calls, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, talking, we're talking emails, we're talking chat logs, we're talking browser history sometimes. 
Um, the things we do online, the people we talk to, uh, the calls we make, the times we make them, they can be viewed. And so what, what was it about the change in the law that, like, how did things change in 2008 that, that, that somehow allowed Americans to be swept up this more? Or was it a matter of, you know, not, you know, blacking out those parts of the communication somehow or not? I, I don't get it. So what changed in 2008 that all of a sudden allowed the American halves of any of these conversations to be picked up where they weren't before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also good. Um, so 2008, the change in the law was done because the way that surveillance had been done before in 1978, it obviously is of a different different technology regime. And it's just a long way of saying that Actually, a lot of people outside the United States are talking to one another through United States services. So through United States, you know, Internet uh, service providers, um, through services like Google or Facebook. And the government thought that it was a bit of a bear to have to apply for the same types of warrant requirements if they were looking for intelligence that happened outside the United States. There was this argument that they had to get probable cause warrants uh, when they shouldn't have, because again, these are people outside the United States, these are not US persons, so they shouldn't have to go through US person mm. warrant regimes. Um, in allowing that, they're, unfortunately, you know, we, Again, we talk to people outside the United States. And so they it seems in being so focused on allowing a type of surveillance to happen outside the United States, they didn't realize that those conversations happen with people in the United States as well. Um, it, it was just a, it looks like it was a lack of foresight, but I can't honestly tell you that it was. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. So... Let's let's dig into the weeds a little bit, and let's let's dig into how these actually work. So let's say I'm I'm from some federal agency, and I want to, and I've identified somebody that I want to surveil. Um, what is the FISA process? Obviously, it's some secret process. It's nothing we de- we generally have access to or transparency on. So, yeah. do we know what what the process is? Like, how do I figure? How do I approach? You know, <clears throat> how do I approach this court to say I want to surveil this guy? How do I identify my targets? Do I yeah, is, yeah, it, yeah. is there content? You know, is there like degrees of separation? Like, if it's if he talks to, if A talks to B, does that mean I can now surveil B and maybe talk to C? How's, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you're right. Uh, FISA is dictated by a different court, uh, a court that a lot of people don't know about, and it's simply called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court sometimes FISC for short, uh, but the you know, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court uh, is the one that approves not warrants. These are not warrants, okay? They approve what are called methodologies, uh, <laughs> kind of how surveillance is going to be uh, acted out. Um, I always think that a really good analogy of it is, let's say you work at a restaurant. And you tell the head chef, hey, I'm going to make this recipe for dinner tonight for our patrons. And the head chef says, okay, what are you going to make? You don't have to say what you're going to make. Like, you don't have to say, I'm going to make ratatouille. I'm going to make this. You just have to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Safeway. I'm going to take this expressway. I'm going to go down maybe aisle six and aisle nine. 
And I'm going to make sure that uh, I don't go into the other aisles because uh, that way, you know, it's this is I'm getting to something here called minimization procedures, but mm-hmm. I'll get to that later. But that's all you have to do. And then someone from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, one of 11 judges, decides on their own, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Go for it. It's not, again, they're not approving, they're not approving the recipe. They're not approving any probable cause warrant. These are not warrants. Um, these are procedures. They, again, they approve methodology and the uh, time for surveillance can vary. Uh, it can be 90 days. It can be up to 120 days. Uh, and after that finishes, you can simply reapply again. Wow. So I've heard that FISA court uh, is basically being characterized as a rubber stamp. Now, you know, like they're rarely, if ever, denied. Didn't the Obama administration uh, try to enforce some sort of adversarial process or have somebody there to represent the the other side of the argument? Was there was there some move to try to make it a little bit less of a rubber stamp? And it's time for our first break. We'll be back in just a minute to keep talking with David Reese from uh, EFF. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So I've heard that FISA court uh, is basically being characterized as a rubber stamp. Now, you know, like they're rarely, if ever, denied. Didn't the Obama administration uh, try to enforce some sort of adversarial process or have somebody there to represent the the other side of the argument? Was there was there some move to try to make it a little bit less of a rubber stamp? Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, really good. Um, so the FISA court, uh, which I'm going to refer to. Uh, that as, you know, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Mm -hmm. The FISA court for a while only took legal considerations from the government. So if anyone was, if they had any concerns about uh, sort of Section 702 compliance or even how the NSA was carrying out its surveillance, they only got to hear arguments from the government. There, There was no one else who could say, Hey, this is this is bad for reasons A, B, and C. 
uh, they only got to hear from one side. So the Obama administration did open that up to allow, uh, I guess you could say adversarial, but it's not even adversarial, literally anyone else, (laughs) anyone who isn't the government. They allowed a they allowed the filing of briefs for judges to consider separate opinions, which is um which is good. That is a good thing. Do we have any idea that if that's dialed back, is that is that actually done its purpose? And have we rejected some some requests based on this? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't actually know the efficacy of it. Uh, I don't know uh, if anything has been dialed back, but I can tell you that some opinions. Uh, some FISA court opinions have been released to the public. They've been unsealed. Hmm. And we have seen quite a few times, actually, that a FISA court judge will sort of rebuke the NSA uh, for failing to comply with a variety of things, Uh, how long they store data, um, how they ask for the data. Uh, It seems that there's actually a lot of violations out there. Mm -hmm. And we're only seeing them because these opinions are being unsealed. At the so the judges themselves make that decision. Are there is there some sort of a you know Freedom of Information Act angle or or how do we do as a as the public do we have any way to get any sort of statistics or any sort of view on this whatsoever? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the process for unsealing one, I'll be honest again, I don't know the exact ins and outs, but I can tell you that there is a website out there uh, run by this organization, the Open Technology Institute, and they have compiled all of the violations they can find. Uh, and they have also categorized them. Again, it, it's honestly, it is the best resource that I know of in trying to find out where the FISA court can improve and also where the NSA can improve uh, in Section and 702 compliance. Okay, great. I'll make sure I put a, put a link to that in the show notes. So um, some more nitty gritty. So on, on the information storage and access, um, you know, once this information is collected, uh, how is it stored? How long is it stored? What agencies have access to this mm-hmm. uh, information? For example, I'd, I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, uh, I've heard that, for instance, maybe the FBI or a federal prosecutor who's trying to build a case on somebody, you know, if it's if it's unrelated to uh, terrorism, can they still go to the uh, to this database and 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 say, hey, you know, can I get some records on this guy because I'm trying to build another case? Who? So how do we access this information? What, what's the controls on this? Yeah, good one. Um, so this is definitely where it gets a little murky because unfortunately we don't have clear cut information on this uh, in terms of storage. Uh, I can't tell you that I know where it's stored. I imagine it's stored in some massive server farm, but we can tell you that it is massive. Um, They are trying to sweep up as much information as they can and keep it for as long as they can. Uh, There are some rules uh, about how long certain types of data can be stored, uh, but we're not entirely certain even if that, that date, that expiration date, applies as soon as the data gets stored in a database or as soon as the data gets seen by someone mm. accessing the database. So again, it's this kind of murky thing. Um, but to your point, who can access it? The FBI can access it. Yes, they can. That is absolutely true. And it is something we call the backdoor search loophole. Mm. Uh, it's a backdoor uh, because it skirts the Fourth Amendment rights of US persons. And so let's say I'm an FBI agent. And I think that someone has committed a crime, and I want to find out if that's true. What I do as an FBI agent is I go to the NSA and I say, hey, I have these 
one or two or three search terms that I would like you to use. And the NSA uses those search terms and they let the FBI know if it has, if that database has results on U.S. persons based on those search terms. Wow. We don't know what those search terms precisely are. We hear them often referred to as U.S. person identifiers, right? <laughs> we know that that could be like an email address. We don't know. We don't know if that's something as simple as a name. Um, and so this is what we talk about when we say these are warrantless searches. If you are talking to someone outside of the United States and that person has been swept up in 702 surveillance, your communications are in a database. Your communications can be given to the FBI simply by the FBI asking. Your communications, your emails, your content, what you say to someone, those are getting searched without a warrant. And it's, it's something that needs to stop. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. Um, so is that information that they get from the NSA, is that directly admissible? Or is this one of those situations where they, they, they find out this information, and then they have to build some sort of alternate fact tree? Like, I, you know, like, <laughs> you, you know, they you always see this on the TV shows where they find out information through a poisonous fruit situation, mm -hmm. and then they use that information to actually find the real facts through some other method that is admissible. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, we, I do know of something sort of called parallel construction, and that's right. kind of what you're getting to there, is, um, hey, yep. we know that this kind of exists, but we know we can't use it this way. Like you say, you got it from a poisonous fruit uh, method. Um, I know of parallel construction. I don't know how often it's used. I don't know what the uh, justifications are, you know, if there's, if there's a certain time you can use it or a certain time you can't, or if it's just agents using it to cover up their own tracks. Um, but it is exceedingly rare that there are lawsuits in the United States where someone is contesting that Section 702 collected data was used against them to build a criminal case. It is exceedingly rare. I know that. And so it does sort of goes to show that even if it is happening, we're left in the dark. Gotcha. Okay, so... Um... This is important now. The whole section 702 thing is important now because uh, this is something that I guess they built in sunset clauses into these things that has to be reauthorized every few years or so. And that, that year is now. Yeah. So it's coming up at the end of the year. Um, so that's one reason why this is hitting the news. Another reason is because there's a new bill being uh, proposed for, by, uh, bar, on a bipartisan basis called mm -hmm. the um, – there's a couple of them. Actually, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the sunset of 702, what it means, how the, what the process is for reauth, and and what is uh, this this uh, amendment that they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Section 702 is due to sunset at the end of this year, at the end of 2017. And what that simply means is if Congress does not vote to reauthorize it or uh, you know reform it in a certain way, it ends. It's over. Uh, it, it gets yanked out. This entire surveillance regime just gets pulled out, and it's over. Like, which is, which is a crazy thing. You would think that something that the government prizes so much wouldn't uh, rely so much on a legislative deadline, but it absolutely does. So, like, and, all all surveillance gets shut down. All does all the data get wiped? What I mean? Uh, good question. I honestly don't know what would happen to the data. Um. Surveillance as allowed under Section 702 would be stopped. There are other laws that govern surveillance. 
it takes a long time to get into them, but Executive Order 12333 is one of them. We have seen sometimes interpreted for also different types of monitoring and surveillance. But uh, Section 702, again, as we know it, as we've been talking about it, it stops, um, which is a powerful thing. But Congress will not let that happen. And so mm. in the past month, we have seen quite a few bills introduced in the Senate and the House that address, uh, again, Section 702 reauthorization and also reform. And the one that I think you were talking about here, this bipartisan effort, is one called the Liberty Act. Um, there is another one uh, introduced by uh, Senators Ron Wyden and Rand Paul. That's called the USA Rights Act. Yes, that was actually the one I'd heard of. Yeah, and that one is something that civil liberties organizations and digital rights organizations such as EFF firmly support and have really fought for. Uh, this thing that I was talking about before where the FBI can just warrantlessly search uh, 702 collected data, it stops that. It's, it stops it. If a FBI agent or any government agent wants to search through 702 collected data on an American person, they have to get a warrant. And it is, it is strong language that ends, again, what we think is a, is a huge violation of our civil liberties and the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. What else does it do? I know there's several. There are several provisions. Um, does it? Uh, I think it, it, it introduces some more oversight. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, the bill is a. It goes far. You know, that's the best way I can put it. It does a lot, a lot of things. It uh, it gives more power to this uh, independent agency. Uh, they're called the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Uh, they're just an independent agency that is supposed to help the executive branch during lawmaking and policymaking, uh, kind of like a check, you know. Uh, and what it does is it uh, it gives them the ability to subpoena individuals uh, if they get their own agency. Uh, previously, actually, as it stands now, those subpoenas have to be approved by the attorney general, but now they could just do it on their own. They could kind of uh, investigate. Uh, any claims on their own, which is huge. That's a really big thing. Um, it also, this is interesting, uh, it gives some of the members a salary uh, because <laughs> it wants it wants these people to be able to do this as a full-time job and not have to worry about something else. And that kind of goes to show how it's being treated right now, that huh. it's not a full-time job, that, right. it's not, that it's not a salaried position. So they're saying, hey, we need these people to devote their entire workday to this. Um, and so it gives agency and independence to this, uh, this oversight board, uh, which is also, again, a really good thing. Um, one other thing it does, interestingly enough, is uh, it makes it easier for people like you and I to file lawsuits claiming that we were harmed by Section 702 oversight. Right. Um, it's not like a slam dunk. You know, it's not like a, hey, I could file a lawsuit as soon as this bill is passed. Um, and reap millions. But again, it just makes the process a little easier by focusing on a specific legal standard. And it's something, honestly, we didn't expect. Uh, so it just goes to show that you know this bill is is thinking about 702 reform in a way that uh, that goes really, really far. Yeah, I, re I remember reading about that. That back in the back in the 2008, uh, the Amnesty International and the ACLU filed lawsuit and. 
uh, I think they got shut down because eventually a judge said they had no standing, and that was yep. something that the uh, this reform bill is 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 addressing. I think what you just mentioned. That's precisely yeah. That's exact. That's exactly what it is. Is this uh, this idea of standing? And standing is this legal standard which uh, just you have to prove that you were harmed by something. Uh, you can't file a lawsuit against someone uh, if you have no relation to that person, and you can't prove that what that person did was to you. You know, it's just this kind of it's very structural procedural thing that that exists in every lawsuit ever. <laughs> Yeah, but I know it's come up with some of the cybersecurity things too, because some of the there were some lawsuits, and I'm sure Equifax is this is going to become an issue with the Equifax <laughs> debacle. But yep. you know, there a lot of these cases come up, these class action lawsuits come up, and the, and some mm-hmm. of the judges are basically saying, "Yeah, it sounds bad that they let your information go, but have you been harmed yet?" <laughs> you know, in yeah. a, in a, in, you know, and unless they can yeah. prove that they were actually you know victims of identity theft and could trace it back to the the, the whatever yeah. the server breach was, that they have no standing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. To go down a brief tangent for a little bit, this is actually something we see sometimes with other breaches. Uh, The way people will uh, confirm their standing is they will say, hey, I knew that credit card data was stolen in the most recent breach. And they say, lo and behold, a new credit card was formed or payments were made using my information. And so they try and connect those dots to show that they have standing. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So let's play devil's advocate for a second. In fact, I'm going to ask you to play devil's advocate. What, <laughs> if you had to, if you if you had to take the other side of this argument, what were what are the good things, if anything, about this bill? What why is what might be the argument for retaining 702 as is, or um, maintaining the surveillance regime in general? Um, is there is there an upside to this? Is is there something that we do want to preserve from all of this? Uh so. I will, you know, as as a person at EFF, I I can't ever like be like, yes, I do want the surveillance regime to continue the way it is. Uh-huh. But I could definitely tell you, you know, the things we hear. I can absolutely, you know, say what the government says is valuable, and what they say is valuable is that Section seven hundred two preserves quote unquote national security. Mm-hmm. It uh, it keeps Americans safe. Um, it's a way to monitor potential bad actors. Uh, and those bad actors can be abroad, but especially with the way communications happen today globally, that international bad actors outside of the United States can be talking to people inside the United States. And the government and the FBI and the NSA say that being privy to those communications is something, again, that preserves national security. Um, We don't have proof of it. Uh, I understand why the government doesn't want to show actual use cases. They Mm -hmm. argue that, look, if we show attack X was prevented using these methods, they fear that bad actors will skirt you know those specific (laughs) types of surveillance um i understand that uh at the same time from our understanding the nsa and the fbi aren't making very valid use cases even in classified settings when they speak to senators who are making these decisions uh who are voting on these bills um it's it's very hard to say 
show me how the surveillance machine works when the government says, oh, the way it works is by perfect secrecy. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, that's it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, um, I think it was Snowden. I always like the kind of way Snowden put it. He said, you know, to say that you, oh, let's get this right, um, that you don't care about the right to privacy because you have nothing to hide is like saying you don't care about the right to free speech because you have nothing to say. Um, you know, and it, it, and so there's that aspect. And then for me, it's also the difference between mass surveillance and targeted surveillance. You know, it, you know, back in the day, they actually had to do work. Like they had to figure out that this, this guy was probably a bad guy or they think is a bad guy. So they had to get a warrant or whatever. Then they had to, and they had to like go to the guy's house and bug his phone or, uh, you know, or put a camera in the bushes or something like that. And now it's just, it just comes to them. So it's this mass dragnet thing where it's like, well, well let's just suck it all up and then worry about it later. You know, that mm-hmm. to me is the big difference between between the two things. And then, of course, there's a lack of transparency, too. And, um, yeah. you know, how, how do you how do we, as a, you know, as constituents, as citizens evaluate secret laws and secret courts, you know, <laughs> when we don't have access to the data? All right. One more break and then we'll be back to finish our interview and then have our tip of the week. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. It's your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. How do you, how do we as a, you know, as constituents, as citizens evaluate secret laws and secret courts, you know, <laughs> when we don't have access to the data and, you know. Yeah. Um, it is a, honestly, it's a, it's a question that bugged me a lot. I can't even say that, uh, I was a person who knew about these things for years. You know, when Snowden confirmed government surveillance on American persons, uh, that was the first time I found out about it. That was the first time I read about it. And that was the first time it was a real shock to me, you know? And I I remember thinking, my goodness, how long has this been going on? Right. And one of the things that we can do, uh, particularly right now, is to call our representatives, is to call uh, the people who we have elected. And it, it works right now because, again, we're about to sunset Section 702. And we can make demands. We can say, and the back door, you know, this is this is one thing. This is just one thing that we can focus on really hard. I implore everyone to care about more. But, you know, as this law is going to sunset and as, you know, congressional members are debating how far to go, call them. Honestly, call them. These these things are being debated and and they need to hear from people like you and me. They need to hear that not just policy wonks and, and hyper-liberal individuals think this is important. Look, the, the Fourth Amendment applies to every single person, not just policy wonks and hyper-leftist people. It, it applies to every single person. Um, and so we need to say that. So where, where does this stand right now in the House and the Senate? And uh, do we have any, for, you know, put, putting your pundit hand on, do, do, we, mm-hmm. is, do we think that this has a chance to succeed? Are, the, are, are any of these provisions that we're salivating over likely to get <laughs> struck before it makes the president's desk? Or is it going to even get that far? And if it <laughs> yeah. does, will the president sign it? So, yeah, unfortunately, as much as we really, really like the USA Rights Act, uh, which we had been speaking about, 
there is not a lot of movement in Congress, if any, uh, to vote on this as the bill that moves forward. Uh, there is more conversation happening around a bipartisan bill, the one that I introduced a little bit a while ago. I refer to it's the USA Liberty Act. And that one has some protections, but again, nothing is as far-reaching as the USA Rights Act. Uh, the Liberty Act does require warrants for criminal investigations. So if the FBI agent wants to look through 702 collected data for a criminal investigation, they have to get a warrant. But if they're looking through 702 collected data for foreign intelligence, and I say that with quotes, they don't need, they don't need a warrant. Um, so again, it, it gives some protections, but it doesn't give everything we want. And even worse, uh, there is another bill uh, which was introduced in the Senate, and it has a sunset provision of eight years, which is longer than any of the other bills. Um, that means that we have to wait another eight years to have the conversation that we're having today, and we can't wait that long. That sure, we absolutely cannot risk having that happen again. Technology moves way faster than that. If we wait eight years to have this conversation again. Uh, Honestly, I I will consider it a failure. Sure. So do, again, do any of these bills have a chance? Or which are they likely to see the president's desk? And do we have any oh. indication whether the president will sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we uh, the Liberty Act, um, is the bipartisan measure, uh, is the one that a lot of people are attaching their carriages to. Uh, it's the one that a lot of people are gunning for to hopefully pass forward. Um, if it fails. That longer bill with the eight-year sunset is the only bill that has advanced as equally far, and we're afraid that the Senate will simply vote on that. Mm. Uh, in terms of, you know, whichever one does hit the president's desk, honestly, it's kind of strange. You know, when I thought of all the things I didn't like about President Trump and, you know, in his campaign, it was interesting to me that all the things I didn't like about the Obama administration didn't even come up. You know, there were so many other things to worry about. Uh, we know that President Trump is an individual who uh, has advocated for torture, has advocated for war crimes, uh, killing families of terrorists. Uh, you know, it's never safe to judge a person's position on one thing as they are on another. But, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he was an individual who supported the surveillance regime. That's all. Mm. And so I think he would like as few limitations as possible to the surveillance regime. But again, there's so many other things happening that I feel like we haven't even been able to have a nuanced conversation about surveillance with this administration. Yeah. Uh, there's too many other fires happening. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a shame. That's, yeah, it is a shame. All right, so let's bring this home a little bit. So, uh, yeah, my guess is that most of the audience is fairly convinced, or at least uh, we've piqued their interest on this. Uh, we've talked about the usual, you know, the usual go out and contact your representatives. Um, let's some, get some brass tacks out there. I know that, you know, the various houses have their own schedules and deadlines for things like this. It's not necessarily just that by the end of the year. Are there any milestones we should be aware of? Like if we're going to make our voices heard. Um, first of all, what do you think is the most effective way to do that? Is it, is it emails, is it phone calls, is it the website, you know, website form and are there deadlines or like, are there like 
uh, things we should be trying to hit time-wise mm-hmm. that would make this most effective? Yeah, absolutely. So the first deadline I'll give you is, uh, again, that bipartisan bill, uh, the USA Liberty Act. Uh, it might go to what's called a markup uh, next Thursday. Uh, and so that is, help me out here, I don't actually know what date that is. November uh, 9th? 9th, yep. November 9th. Um, we need to put pressure on members of the House to hear our concerns by that markup. Uh, that's a huge deadline. If we miss that deadline and nothing comes out of that markup, it kind of gives more room, again, for that longer bill with the eight-year sunset to kind of become like the choice for the Senate to vote on. And, and we just fear that a lot. Uh, and, you know, I didn't realize until maybe a couple of years ago that phone calls work. Phone calls are, are a huge deal. Um, clogging up the lines, uh, just from a like a like a sheer volume kind of mm. uh, point of view, it, it seems to actually, I don't know, it kind of gets it kind of it kind of gets the message across. Actually, it, it works into their heads. Um, you know, not to like just pump up EFF's own efforts here, but we do have a website called endthebackdoornow.com. Um, and that is a place where you can find your representative, uh, and you can make a call to them. And I apologize. It's just endthebackdoor.com okay. and the back door now. But, um, that's one of them. Yeah. I've used, uh, your services several times before. I, I love the one that would actually mix the calls for you uh, in succession, mm-hmm. like to figure out who your three representatives are, your local congressman and your two senators and walks you through, like it does all the calls for you, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Those are great um, tools. I'm looking at it now, and we have that call tool on this page. So uh, it'll help you out. It is, it is really good for a person who's just, you know, just coming into these topics because these are difficult topics. They're really wonky. They're really complex, and there's a lot of legal justifications and legal standards that sometimes combat or overlap. Um, we we don't want to get bogged down in that. Uh, and and yeah, again, if this is your first time coming to these issues, yeah, we want to help you. We want to help you find the representatives. We want to help you make that call or make the call for you. Yeah. So last question. If, uh, mm-hmm. if you know, let, let's say I bought, I've, I bought into this argument and I think it's an important thing. If I want to convince my neighbor, if I want to c- convince my conservative uncle, if I want to, you know, <laughs> what, what is the, you know, what is the simplest, strongest argument that I could make that would, that would maybe at least get them to pay attention and take a check this kind of issue out? How do I present this to somebody who might be like, we got to stop the terrorists. We, whatever, <laughs> you know, I'll give up everything just to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is something we think about a lot. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes to want to convince someone uh, because when I think about it, I'm like, I'm like, what convincing does it take? <laughs> um, but, you know, we really do rely on these rights that we have that were granted to us in the Constitution. And their rights, you know, actually from the government, that yeah. their, their restrictions on the government. Um, if anything, they, they favor a smaller government. They favor what, you know, right-leaning individuals should also favor. And, you know, what this is, is this is an overreach. This is a government overreach, and it violates our rights. You know, rights are, they're, they're not negotiable. They're right. not things that, that need to be traded. Um, and there's this sort of belief that civil liberties and national security 
can't coexist. That's not true. They, they can coexist. We can, we can have measured, responsible legislation that protects us and both in our communications and in our safety, you know? Uh, again, it's just, it's just a time for us to say that, that we're, being, we're being infringed on. Yeah. It's such a plain argument that sometimes I, I just wonder, like, who wouldn't be compelled by this? But <laughs> yeah. it, it's, again, these are things that, that we have. These are things that we have and they can't be taken away. And they're being taken away. Yes, for sure. And, and and for me, it comes, a lot of it comes down to me. It's, you know, do you want to be taking these things from, from a position of fear? And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, when, as soon as you get into a position of fear on these things, then you're, you're kind of want to throw out anything to protect yourself and your family. And it, 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 it absolutely, there, there are bigger issues involved. There's longer, longer term thinking we need to do. One of the books I love to re- refer people to is uh, little brother. Uh, mm-hmm. by, by Cory Doctorow and uh, who we just talked to recently. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a great book to kind of illustrate um, how these things play the other way and how you need to be looking at this from other angles. And, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, for, on, on many cases, I, I have the same way. It's like, it just seems obvious to me, but. Um, yeah. Like you, like you said really quickly there, I just wanted to talk about, you mentioned fear. We've seen fear play a large role in American politics for years, for years, you know, for more than a century. And we've seen fear play an ugly role. Fear has given us some bad things. Uh, fear has given us McCarthyism. Mm. Fear has given us the Chinese Exclusion Act. Fear helped drive the Patriot Act. Yep. Fear doesn't push us in the immediate right direction. We need to, we need to not let fear run our politics. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree. And on that note, I will thank you very much for coming. That was some wonderful information. It was a really critical, important discussion to have. And I hope the audience took away um, some really good info from that. And we'll all go out and act. Unfortunately, this is probably not going to air until like Wednesday. So, so Uh, we'll we'll have to to get the word out through Twitter and other means too. But uh, Thursday's the day if you can to get out there, um, call your representatives and make your voice uh, heard. Absolutely. Carrie, thank you so much for having me on the show. And thank you. All right, and I've got time for just a quick tip of the week. I wanted to kind of go back and touch up base on something I talked about last week and maybe was a little bit too glib with, and that is the app permissions uh, stuff that kind of came up with an, uh, a recent article basically saying that you need to watch out how much permission you give to certain uh, applications on your smart devices. Uh, this particular article was about uh, iOS or Apple devices and permissions given to those applications, like letting those apps use your your location, using uh, accessing your contacts, asking accessing accessing your microphone, accessing the video camera on the front and the back, um, and you know it. It asks you for these things, and maybe you don't think about them, but. Uh, there also could be permission creep. Sometimes you might think, you know, that some of these apps might need a video camera to start with for sometimes, uh, for example, sometimes you have to scan a code or something to initialize the app. But after that, the app doesn't need your video camera. Um, also, some of these apps that, you know, want to use your photos and location and things, it might be nice and they might have asked for that originally. But if you think about it, it's like, eh, you know, they really don't need that or for for how I use that app, I really don't need them to know that. So our tip of the week, and this is something I think you could honestly you should just put on your calendar like once a month or once every 
quarter or something like that, go through your smart devices and just check all your permissions again. And sometimes they get reset, even though we've set them to off. Sometimes with software updates or app updates, sometimes they might get tweaked. Uh, so it's worth reviewing every so often just to make sure you dial back uh, the application's permissions uh, to only the stuff that they absolutely need. And you know, I would recommend you dial it back you know, as far as possible. And if the app comes up and says, hey, I can't do anything because you turned this off, and then you realize, oh, that's why it needed that. Okay, fine. I'll give it back to you. Uh, one of the nice things about uh, at least iOS I know you can do is you can turn on that a lot of these permissions to only operate while the app is uh, in front, while it's actually running, as opposed to all the time. For example, your location. There's no reason for it to know your location all the time. You only really need that like for a Maps app. You need that when it's running, but you don't need it when it's not running. So uh, I'm not going to give you too many details because that's kind of tricky, but I'll, uh, I'll recommend you to uh, uh, to the show notes on the website, and I'm probably going to do a blog article about that uh, as well. So you probably get this on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons by the time this episode airs. Um, but uh, you'll need to go into your uh, – for iOS, you go into Settings Privacy, and for uh, under Android, you have to have at least version 6, which is Marshmallow uh, or greater, as when uh, Android finally gave you these kind of permissions to us. Um, and you'll have to go um, into the app permissions there on the on Android, and it varies a little bit by device because they all tweak a little, a little bit, so that makes it even harder to give – a good explanation on how to do it. But I do have an article and some links uh, for you to check out that'll walk you through that if you've got an Android device. So check that out. Dial back those permissions. Don't give them anything more than they need to. Um, and uh, if necessary, you can always give them back later. All right, and that's going to wrap up another episode. Uh, thanks again to David Reese for coming on. That was a very insightful discussion uh, on a very important matter. Uh, make sure you reach out to your representatives and voice your support for these reforms. We definitely need to dial back some of these surveillance practices that have gotten way out of hand. So uh, be sure you do that. Um, and until then, don't get caught with your drawbridge down, folks. Take care.